Hello and welcome to the Ukraine War Report. My name is Keith. This is Season 2, Episode 6. Bringing you up to speed on what's happened so far, which isn't much. We had a uh, nuclear war drill, including missile launches by the Russians. We've had bombings on key power infrastructure in Ukraine by the Russians. And a number of more victories for the Ukrainians. Beyond that, nothing significant has happened in the stalemate and in the nuclear crisis, which is this is the nuclear crisis 2022 series. And I got a chance to see this uh, infographic series videos. Um, they're on YouTube and they're quite informative. And uh, they have a couple of uh, neat videos that just came out. And uh, dealing with the United States preparation for nuclear war, what are they going to do? What are we going to do here in the United States for your protection and the government's protection? And also uh, talking a little bit about this new medicine order that the government just uh, procured um, in the event of a attack. So I want to share both of those videos with you in this podcast. And if any more developments break out, we will let you know and uh, give you the latest on this crisis 2022. The worst case scenario finally happened. The bombs are in the air and in a matter of minutes, the United States will be hit by a nuclear attack. Millions are in danger along with the entire future of the United States government. What now? This isn't the first time the threat of nuclear annihilation was high on the government's mind. Ever since the US beat the Nazis to the bomb and was followed by the Soviets only years later, the government's been preparing for the worst-case scenario of a nuclear strike on the homeland. Initially, the threat was the Soviet Union, the United States' arch-nemesis. But now the threat of nuclear attack comes from China, Russia, North Korea, Pakistan, rising powers like Iran, and even international terror groups. No one knows whether any of these besides the first two even have the capability to hit the United States. But the government is not going to test their luck. After the September 11th terror attacks, the government quickly moved to plan for all eventualities and have a plan of action in case of worst-case scenarios. There are multiple scenarios created by the Department of Homeland Security, and a nuclear attack is national response scenario number one. Ominously, the scenarios are ranked by how likely they are to occur which means the government thinks that a nuclear attack on the homeland is the most likely catastrophic scenario to occur, and dealing with it will not be simple. The government's first step is to try to keep a lid on the nuclear threat, and that's a lot more complicated than it used to be. In the Cold War, keeping the nukes from being launched usually meant talking to one man, the premier of the Soviet Union. While other countries had nuclear weapons, they were usually firmly aligned with one of two sides. Now, with India and Pakistan both having nukes and being in a low-boil state of war with each other, plus the notoriously unstable Kim regime testing missiles all the time, there are far more variables, and with the collapse of the Soviet Union and instability in other regimes, means it's possible for nuclear weapons and dirty bombs to wind up on the black market, which means that nuclear weapons could hit the homeland in more ways than one. The biggest threat is long-range nuclear missiles, which carry the biggest payload. It's believed that only Russia and China have the ability to hit the U.S. this way, with North Korea working hard to join the club. Other countries' nuclear missiles are mostly designed to deal with threats in their backyard. While this is the most predictable threat, it's also the most dangerous. These are the missiles that will carry the biggest payload 
and could annihilate a whole metro area in a single hit. The United States, Russia, and China each have enough of these to annihilate life on Earth several times over, which is why an early warning system is key. The United States, Canada, and Denmark developed a radar system during the Cold War to warn of incoming Soviet missiles. Because the shortest route for a Soviet missile was through the North Pole, they built the infrastructures throughout the Arctic. Those systems were the building blocks for ballistic missile warning systems around the world, and they're still in play today, although they're not foolproof. During the Cold War, there were several false alarms of incoming missiles, and nuclear war was only averted by cool-headed commanders, who often defied protocol to hold off on launching a full-scale response. And even in the modern day, there were false alarms. In 2018, residents of Hawaii received an emergency text about an incoming ballistic missile, sending most of the island into a panic. Those were false alarms, but the real one could come at any minute. In the event of an actual nuclear attack, the government has many plans to keep things running. The first priority is to ensure the safety of the president and the key to the United States' defense, the nuclear football. Despite what the media wants you to think, there is no briefcase with a big button to launch the nukes, which is probably a good thing given how some presidents might have hit it because someone insulted them on Twitter. Instead, to launch any nuclear weapons, the president uses a briefcase to communicate with the Pentagon from anywhere and give his instructions. And his orders are absolute. The president's orders are authenticated through the Pentagon, but their only purpose is to confirm that the president is the one giving the orders. Once the president gives the command to launch nuclear weapons in retaliation of an attack or as a first strike, the Pentagon has no authority to deny the order. They confirm the president's identity including the current nuclear codes and launch. Some have said this gives the president too much power, with Major Harold Herring pointing out some of the flaws in the program during the Cold War. He was promptly removed from the missile training program for asking too many questions. But before the missiles launch, the president has to be kept alive. Once it's clear the missiles are in the air, the president will immediately be spirited away to an emergency bunker, whatever the closest one is to his location. This is likely to be a short and easy trip because the government has dozens of these bunkers around the country, each equipped to be a local command center for the president and a place where the survivors can be kept alive long term. These bunkers are where the worst case scenario plays out. If life on the surface becomes impossible due to nuclear fallout, the US government can survive underground, and some of these facilities are massive. While most of these and their locations are kept secret, the largest are well known, but that doesn't mean you can get in to take a tour. Raven Rock, located in southern Pennsylvania, is a massive US military installation that serves as a command center for the armed forces. Each of the four branches have a base here along with Mount Weather in Virginia and Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. All three are built into mountains and are massive looking more like a city than an office building. The only people who have access to these centers are essential military personnel who have high enough clearance to have access to the core of the government's nuclear preparedness plan. But what if the president can't be saved? No one knows where the first missile will hit, and it's possible that the president, the vice president, and the leaders of Congress, the Speaker of the House, and the president pro tempore will be at ground zero when a nuclear attack hits Washington. This could throw the US government into chaos with no clear leader, which is why the order of succession is locked into the Constitution. If the first four leaders are wiped out, the order of succession starts working its way down the cabinet, starting with the Secretary of State and moving down by when the cabinet positions were created. That makes the Secretary of Homeland Security last in line since they hold the most recent seat, and the government takes great care to ensure it's never completely wiped out. The entire line of succession is never in the same place at the same time. This most often comes into play with the State of the Union address. One cabinet official is always chosen to stay behind and hold down the fort in a safe location in case an attack wipes out Congress, the designated survivor. This is an orderly way of handling things, but in the event of a nuclear attack, it's most likely to come down to whoever happens to be the luckiest, 
So the military's first task in the event of an unexpected attack might be to track down the survivor who's first in line and let them know they're now president. Well, good, the president is secure, whoever it is. What about the rest of us? Back when the nuclear weapons were first developed, the plans to survive an attack were rudimentary at best. People built bomb shelters, but it's not clear if any of them actually could have withstood a nuclear blast. As for the government, they knew that people would likely only have minutes of warning before Soviet weapons hit, and very few places to hide. So their advice was to get under your desk. American school children during the 1950s became very acquainted with the duck and cover drill, which joined the iconic fire drill in regular routines. Was hiding under your desk going to make a difference in a nuclear attack? Of course not, but it made people feel like they had more control over their fate. So it might have done its job at the time, and hey, it was promoted by a cartoon turtle. But in the event of an actual nuclear strike, the government did have plans to try to preserve what it could. Communication will be key in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear attack. So who gets put in charge? Not the Department of Defense, surprisingly, the Environmental Protection Agency. This is because the biggest threat after the initial blasts will be the radiation in the air. Anyone who is caught in the immediate blast radius is gone, and those who did manage to get far enough from the blast will not last long without the government's help. But in the aftermath, knowing what to do might make the difference between survival and dying of radiation sickness. So the EPA has released a series of scripts designed to guide people through the aftermath of an attack. Some of them are common sense, and some might keep people from making fatal mistakes. Scripts tell people how to get their hands on food or water, and warn them to get as far away from the blast site as they can. They also warn people to avoid public spaces, as the risk of making your way to the hospital or fire station is too high to take unless you have a pressing medical emergency. Surprisingly, they say that if you're in your car when the bombs hit, that's the safest place to be. It might be tempting to abandon the car and seek a safer place, but the car actually shields you quite a bit from outside the radiation, so hunkering down in your car might be your best bet. But advice can only go so far. The government's prepared for all eventualities, and even though the risk of nuclear war has declined since the Cold War, they're staying stocked with medication that could alleviate sickness in the aftermath of a nuclear attack. This is part of the Strategic National Stockpile, a cache of emergency medication stored for a disaster. This stockpile is spread out among a network of warehouses around the United States and could be used to respond to a sudden disease outbreak or a natural disaster. But the most important part of the cache is its stock of medicine designed to help with radiation sickness. Of course, this doesn't help the people caught at ground zero or those who receive a fatal dose, but it could help to reduce casualties in the aftermath. And who would be handling the distribution? That would be the one organization everyone hopes is wasting taxpayer money, because they'll have only something to do in the aftermath of a massive disaster. The Public Health Emergency Medical Countermeasures Enterprise, or the tongue-twisting acronym PHEMCE. It's the government's last resort agency in the event of a nuclear disaster. This is especially important because it's possible some agencies might be wiped out by the attack and others might be unable to communicate due to infrastructure being destroyed. So this division will coordinate between around a dozen government agencies, including the CDC and Defense Department. The goal will be to get supplies and medication out to the people, communicate safety measures, figure out where the attack came from and decide on a response. But there's only so much the government can do. The government does have bunkers around the country, with Raven Rock being the biggest and most secure. No one's sure exactly how many there are or what their capacity is, but it's become clear that in the event of a large-scale nuclear disaster, it'll be impossible to save everyone. During the 1950s, the bombs were smaller and slower, and we were more likely to have advanced warning. No country had nearly as many nukes as they do today, and the population of the United States was much smaller. Then the bombs kept growing and growing, and so did the population. Weapons were developed that could wipe out whole cities in a matter of seconds. So the plan changed. During the Reagan administration, two influential men were brought in to meet with the president. 
Their names? Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. While they become famous or infamous a few decades later, they were only trusted advisors now, and Reagan wanted them to develop a Cold War strategy to ensure the survival of US leadership during a nuclear war. Tensions with the Soviet Union were heating up again, and a nuclear war could break out at any time, so every year they would head off to a secret mission and plan an escape route for the line of succession. While the plan is highly classified, it's believed it involved the key officials being split up and flown to separate bunkers, with each team including a cabinet member and officials representing the Department of Defense, State Department, and the CIA. So no matter who survived, the infrastructure would be there to take command. But what would life be like for those who survived? The plan was for an extended stay underground in the bunkers, which would be well-stocked with the basics of survival. But not much else. Life down there would be Spartan, with food likely being strictly rationed for long-term survival and designed to be shelf-stable because its job was to sit there until it was needed. During the 50s, the government initially urged people to keep a week's supply of canned goods on hand in case of a nuclear event. But more research showed this wouldn't provide much beyond a stay of execution. Much more would be needed if a family wanted to survive a nuclear attack. So the government began preparing emergency rations. The solution? The all-purpose survival cracker. A hard and mostly tasteless cracker made out of bulgur wheat. It came in individual packets along with a tiny hard candy that was called a carbohydrate supplement. They were designed to be shelf-stable, but they didn't last forever. When there was an attempt to use the crackers in the 70s in disaster zones, it was clear they had long since expired. They were designed for a time when nuclear war felt very real, almost expected. But when the apocalypse didn't happen, they fell out of use and production stopped. Today, they're not really needed. The selection of cheap, accessible canned foods that can last years or more is so large that people can stock their apocalypse pantry with ease. But the odds are people in charge have much better provisions. No one knows exactly what it's like in buildings like Raven Rock, but the sheer size of the facilities means they likely have room to supply a staff of hundreds or even thousands for years at a time. So the president won't be going hungry, and he might even be able to bring his personal chef along. Although he, like everyone else, would be limited to shelf-stable, long-lasting foods. But for the rest of us, we're back to the old advice of keeping a supply of canned goods to last us until the outside was safe again. But the government isn't really advising people to plan for a nuclear disaster anymore, even if the odds of one are slightly higher than they were post-Cold War. And even if the government isn't planning for a war, that doesn't mean they're not ready for one. What would happen if the United States was actually hit by a nuclear attack, killing millions and wiping out much of the US government? It would be clear that a state of war existed, but what if the government didn't know exactly where the bombs came from at first? The Mobile Command Center's first task would be to track the bombs to make sure that we were hitting the right target country in response. This is only applicable in the event of a missile attack. The most likely method, if an unconventional nuclear attack was launched, such as a suitcase nuke or a dirty bomb, the government's initial efforts would be on relief and investigation. But when a culprit was uncovered, whether it was a terrorist group or a rogue state, there would be hell to pay. But what if it was a superpower? The most likely threat to the US in the Cold War was the Soviets deciding to strike first, because it decided it was time to vanquish its greatest enemy and put the entire world under the Soviet boot. Was this a realistic outcome? No one's sure, and most of the times nuclear war nearly broke out was because of brinksmanship and mistaken intelligence. But if the Soviet Union did hit the US, the Defense Department had a plan, and it was a plan for maximum damage. It was called the Single Integrated Operational Plan. It was a doomsday agenda to unleash over 1,700 nuclear devices across more than 700 targets, wiping out all major Soviet and Chinese cities as well as targets in other communist nations like North Korea. It's not clear how this plan evolved over the years, but one thing that was shocking about it was that it made no distinction whether a communist country had attacked the US or not. But would this plan work today? In a word, 
No. When the plan was designed, the bombs being used were 80 kilotons, four times the strength of the bomb that hit Nagasaki. Today, most nuclear missiles are much, much more powerful than that, and an attack of that strength would likely not just annihilate the enemy, but cause a level of nuclear fallout that would make life on the surface completely inhospitable long term. The clouds would carry the poison all around the world, even far from the sites that were initially hit. In a best-case scenario, people would be forced to live underground for years. In worse scenarios, it could mean the end of all life on Earth. That means any response today would likely be much more targeted. But it's highly likely it would still involve a nuclear hit on the power structures of the enemy behind the attack. Other elements of the response plan would have thankfully been abandoned as well. One of the most infamous parts of World War II was the arrest and internment of thousands of Japanese Americans solely based on their ethnicity by the United States, with most being held for years until the war ended. And so naturally, during the Cold War, some people looked at this blatant civil rights violation and went, how can I make this work for me? J. Edgar Hoover, the notoriously paranoid FBI chief, was known for keeping an enemies list, and he advocated for the president using it as a base for detaining and arresting anyone deemed to be a potential subversive. This would likely have involved any foreign aliens in the United States, as well as potentially anyone of the nationality of the attackers. These plans were never put into effect, but no one is sure what lists the government is still making. But the biggest challenge for the government in the aftermath of a nuclear attack may just be the people. The United States has a grand tradition of reacting with calm and solidarity in the event of a disaster. We have no doubt that, oh, who are we kidding? It's only been a few years since 2020 and we all remember fighting over that last roll of toilet paper in the aisles of Target. When a disaster happens, it often becomes much worse because people overreact and become paranoid and hostile. In the aftermath of a nuclear attack, it's likely people would panic and that can make a bad situation worse. If people are running around willy-nilly, it could lead to a higher death rate due to radiation poisoning. It could also lead to a surge in crime at a time when the authorities are occupied with a much bigger problem. So the government decided to see how much it could predict before it happened. The Department of Defense regularly runs simulations on their computer systems for specific types of disasters, such as a nuclear attack going off right over the White House. The system was created by a researcher at Virginia Tech, Chris Barrett, who specializes in massive simulations that involve variables for thousands of people. Using one of the most advanced computers in the world, it maps out which outcomes would cause the best results, and which would cause the worst. These simulations were picked up by the government, and they're now a regular feature of the government planning for events they hope never comes to pass. So, what are the best and worst case scenarios? The best case scenarios usually involve people acting responsibly, taking heed of advice, and concentrating on their own safety. The worst case scenarios become a reality when people decide to head for ground zero, or to try to help people caught in the disaster zone. Not only will there be few if any survivors after a nuclear blast, but those would-be heroes often sentence themselves to death due to the fallout. So what are the government's plans now? Many of the plans from the Cold War are still in effect to some degree, just updated to modern technology that makes it easier to communicate and take action wherever the leadership may be. With our communications infrastructure being stronger than ever before, odds are good that the government would be able to stay in contact with its citizens and keep them as calm as possible. But as for what would come next, that's highly classified, and hopefully will stay so forever. Want to know more about this apocalyptic scenario? Check out What If Russia Launched a Nuclear Bomb Minute by Minute, or watch This Is How You Actually Survive a Nuclear Attack for What to Do If the Worst Happens. Amidst threats from Russia's President Vladimir Putin, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services made a purchase that immediately had many eyebrows raising in concern. On October 4, 2022, the HHS announced that it had purchased $290 million worth of the drug Inplate from Agmin USA Incorporated. Does the U.S. government know something the rest of the world doesn't? 
Vladimir Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons have been met with global condemnation, but only one country has threatened to respond with, quote, deadly consequences, end quote. Should Putin move to make that fateful decision? The United States is committed to punishing Russia should it make use of even low-yield nuclear weapons in its failing war inside Ukraine. President Joe Biden, his cabinet, and the Department of Defense have all refused to answer questions on exactly what this response would be, leaving the world to guess as to what the U.S. may have planned. It's extremely unlikely that the response would be a similar nuclear attack, as the United States is committed to only using nuclear weapons in defense of itself, its allies, and those nations it has extended its nuclear umbrella to. These nations may not be formal allies of the United States, but are considered U.S. soil when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons, and a nuclear attack on them is considered a nuclear attack on America itself. This not only helps reassure nations around the world, but is meant to deter them from building their own nuclear weapons programs, thus ensuring non-proliferation of these deadly weapons. But there is one other scenario where the U.S. has reserved the right to use nuclear weapons, and that's in a first-strike capacity. This doctrine is meant to discourage other nations from taking escalatory measures, including the use of alternative weapons of mass destruction, such as biological or chemical weapons, by guaranteeing a nuclear response from America. Though this is only in extreme circumstances, so the United States nuclear doctrine does not extend to the issue of Ukraine. What is certain is that a response from the U.S. to Putin's use of nukes in Ukraine will be an economic one, with America and its friends and allies leveraging their considerable political clout to completely remove Russia from the world economy. This would turn Russia into a hermit kingdom overnight, and as devastating as it would be, this wouldn't lead to nuclear war, and doesn't explain why the Department of Health and Human Services bought almost $300 million worth of medicine to use in case of a nuclear attack. That's where the second likely response by the United States comes into play, because the use of nuclear weapons inside Ukraine by Russia is all but certain to at last bring the United States into the fight. Former director of the CIA and commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, David Petraeus, hypothesized that a U.S. response to the use of nukes by Russia would include an overwhelming conventional attack against every Russian position inside Ukraine. This would likely involve NATO partners and be carried out via a massive air campaign launched from NATO bases in the heart of Europe. The United States has already pre-positioned B-52s in Europe, capable of bringing apocalyptic levels of firepower raining down on the heads of Russian personnel and multiple air wings of U.S. air superiority fighters are permanently based across various American military bases in Europe. Under pressure from Ukrainian forces, Russian forces would quickly collapse under the weight of American air power, even accounting for inevitable losses from Russian air defenses. U.S. stealth aircraft could also reach targets that Ukraine simply cannot, such as logistics hubs, lines of communication, and command and control nodes deep in the rear areas. Staging grounds in Crimea would certainly come under direct attack, and the Kirk Bridge, recently bombed, likely by the Ukrainians, would certainly be eliminated. Russia's dense S-400 and S-300 protective air defense network would be penetrated by stealth aircraft with low observable standoff attack munitions. But that's only the start of the U.S. response, as America would seek to brutally punish Russia for the use of nuclear weapons. As Russian forces are under attack on land, the Russian Black Sea Fleet would have its days numbered. A high priority for the U.S., Russia's Black Sea Fleet threatens Ukraine's trade routes due to its ability to block off ports along the southern coast of the country. It was also this fleet that made it impossible for Ukraine to ship its grain internationally threatening a global food crisis. Now, NATO-supplied ground-based anti-ship weapon systems have given Ukraine
Ukraine some capability to keep Russian ships off their shores, but ultimately most of its merchant ships are unable to leave Ukraine due to the Russian Black Sea Fleet. The destruction of the Russian Black Sea Fleet would be a crippling blow to Russia's ability to project power in the area, but it would also have a massive financial cost as well. US LRASMs or long-range anti-ship missiles are the world's first stealth anti-ship missile a very low observable weapon designed to penetrate very dense air defense networks and deliver a 1,000-pound warhead to a ship. A single blow from an LRASM can be enough to sink smaller to medium-sized vessels, such as a destroyer, if it hits it in the right place. With billions of dollars of hardware sent to the bottom of the Black Sea, Russia would not only take a massive military hit, but a financial one as well. And all that hardware would take decades to replace after tallying the effects of the current and future sanctions alongside a shrinking economy. There's no question that a U.S. response would be devastating for Russian forces, but perhaps that's exactly why the Department of Health and Human Services has proactively bought nearly $300 million in drugs designed to fight radiation sickness. Suffering such an overwhelming and humiliating defeat, Vladimir Putin would have two options, admit defeat and end the war, or escalate further with nuclear attacks against the U.S. There's no evidence that Russia is actually moving to use nuclear weapons, and it's unknown if the DHHS is buying these drugs in response to any expected attack. What is known is that the purchase was undertaken under the authority of the 2004 Project BioShield Act, which was meant to better prepare the U.S. against nuclear, chemical, or biological attack. Implate is used for both adults and children to treat extreme blood loss that occurs after severe radiation exposure. Because radiation can destroy blood platelets, small wounds can lead to huge bleeds endangering lives. Implate stimulates the body's natural ability to build platelets so as to rebuild the ability to clot blood and thus avoid bleed-outs. It's not known exactly how many doses were bought, but it does not seem as if they were purchased to send to Ukraine in case of an escalation by Putin. Rather, this seems to be part of the DHHS's plan to keep a steady resupply of emergency medications at constant readiness. Because drugs like these often have a limited shelf life, the agency regularly buys drugs to replace those which are soon to expire, giving the soon-to-be-expired drugs back to the manufacturer to quickly sell on the marketplace. This makes procurement costs cheaper for the government and ensures a ready supply in case of emergency. The Department of Health and Human Services may simply be further enhancing its preparedness for a disaster, but the timing is very suspicious. What this means about the future of the Ukrainian conflict is unknown, but as the war drags on and Russian losses mount, the consequences of the war might end up with global and possibly even world-ending repercussions. Now go check out one of our early predictions, and this is how the Russian war in Ukraine ends, or click this other video instead.